What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another edition of the Jays for Days podcast. I'm Josh. He's Josh. We got Jays Jumpers, Jaron Jackson Jr., John Morantz, Joe Johnson's, Jaw Raffs, of course. We've got Jays. We got him for days. Josh, how are you doing? We've got Mr. ACC himself. Very, very excited. Brendan Marks from The Athletic at Brendan R. Marks on Twitter. He's back for, I believe, the third time on this pod. I believe so. Um, and the second time in our conference preview, he was here last year to talk about the ACC. He is back. It is it is a really awesome conversation. We get into a lot of UNC, a lot of Duke, but bouncing around the conference. We talked Virginia quite a bit. It is a, it's a really, really solid preview of, of the season to really give you an idea of what the ACC is bringing after, after a, a down year in, in 2021-22, as we talked plenty about on our preseason pod, early, uh, on our preview pod earlier this week. If you haven't checked that one out, that is on our feed as well. But so without further ado, let's go chat with Brendan Marks from The Athletic. Joining us now to talk for a semi-annual appearance on the Jays for Days podcast at this point um, from The Athletic covering UNC Duke and um, as well as uh, the rest of the ACC, Brendan Marks from The Athletic. Brendan, thank you so much for, for taking the time to come and chat some hoops with us. Yeah, of course. I am uh, always happy to. Glad this is a semi-annual thing at this point. <laughs> at this point, we, we, you know, that you're you're definitely our default when it comes to talking about the, the ACC, especially now in this in this stage in this two or three year era. I guess it's only two years of of Duke and UNC kind of being, at least on paper, a step above the rest of the ACC, and that was kind of the case last year and. It's again this year, right? UNC is where we're talking preseason number one team in the country. Duke brings back an abs- absurdly talented, brings back, brings in a, an absurdly talented freshman class. And so it just makes sense to to bring you on and to talk about those two teams as well as, as the rest of the ACC. Um, so let's get, let's hop right into it. Um Let's let's start with UNC. I think that's that's kind of the place where everyone is starting the ACC podcast or just the college basketball podcast when it comes to previews this year. Um, we'll just just want to start with how this preseason hype of of this is a lock to be one of the the two best teams in the country, right? Kind of in that conversation with with Gonzaga in terms of who's going to be the number one team in the country, the favorite to win the national championship. Um, are you on that level with a team that played half of a season at national title contention last year? Um, or are you kind of all in on what, on what the Tar Heels are bringing back? Yeah, I, I think I would say that I probably am not all the way in um, just because there are some changes that have to take place and there are going to have to be some adjustments that are made. Um, I am confident that those will happen, but until we actually roll the balls out, we're not going to see, you know, you look at the end of the way North Carolina played last season and Hubert Davis essentially said to anybody who wasn't one of his starters, sorry guys, um, but you're going to be watching the, you're going to be watching March madness from the pine. And that was a great decision. And really it started about a month before the postseason. And um, the result of narrowing his rotation was you finally saw trust. You finally saw better team defense. You finally saw ball sharing. Um, and, and every player basically had their respective moments in terms of shining and, and showing out and carrying the team. You know, uh, UNC doesn't beat Baylor. If it's not for RJ Davis, they probably 
you know, Leaky Black shut down uh, Justin Lewis at Marquette. Obviously, Caleb Love, 28 points in the second half against UCLA. Armando Baycott's double doubles. You know, Brady Manick was just sort of the constant three-point threat. The things that I'm sort of unsure about that prevent me from being all the way in are, number one, yes, bringing in Pete Nance for Brady Manick is about as good a replacement player as you could find. He does a lot of the same things, fits really nicely within the flow of the offense. He's probably going to be a better defender from Brady day one. Um, But he does not have that same three-point ability, at least from the volume that Brady did last year. And so I think you're talking about the spacing of North Carolina's offense was why it was so special last year. That's going to look a little bit different and kind of unsure of what that's going to look like in full. And secondly, uh, now that Hubert Davis actually has guys beyond five who deserve playing time, how does he manage that rotation? And what does UNC's defense look like when the construct of playing seven, eight, nine, maybe even 10 guys? not as sure about the answers to those questions. That's why, you know, I think people who say UNC is a slam dunk number one, they're the best team in the country and nobody else is close. I don't know about that, but certainly with the talent they have coming back and what they brought in, uh, if this team was any less than top five in the preseason rankings, I'd be pretty confused. You mentioned the defense, and this is something Josh was even talking about on one of our previous podcasts. We went back and did a bunch of just finding random interesting stats we wanted to discuss. And one of the things was the defensive improvement and lo and behold, you wrote an entire article basically trying to figure out the exact same thing, which is what happened here and why did it get so much better? So for people who haven't read it, what, what did you learn sort of doing a deep dive on the defensive improvements that happened as this team all of a sudden went from not being able to be anybody good to almost winning a national championship? And how likely do you think it is that carries over with a little bit of a different looking roster? Of course, you've got a lot of pieces returning, but as you mentioned, it's not just five or six guys anymore. Right, exactly. So, you know, there are a couple of things UNC did. Um, and basically, when we're talking about defensive improvement, I, I sort of look at the bottoming out period as that time from losing back-to-back 20-point losses to Miami and Wake Forest, uh, to the Duke game at home getting absolutely just blown out of the building. From there, you started to see, obviously, the rotation shortened, but also you started to see the defensive improvement. And a couple of things took place. Number one, the way that UNC was playing ball screen coverages did change. Um, and that's not just, you can go and you can find that on the film, but also talking to people around the program, they wanted to try and diversify some of those coverages and also just improve the way they were playing them. So um, UNC for most of last season was playing drop coverage in, in ball screen situations. They wanted Armando Baycott or Brady Manick, whoever was getting caught with the screener sort of playing back a little bit and trying to cut off driving lanes for people. The problem was a lot of the times UNC's, you know, the, the, Ball handler's defender was not actually chasing. They're not act- they, they had great coverage schemes, weren't executing them well. Um, and so you started to see those improve, especially as the rotation cut down. People who didn't do those things didn't play. And if you were someone like a Caleb Love or an RJ Davis, um, that became you know, a non-negotiable from Huber Davis as we got into the last month of the season. And secondly, you did see some of those ball screen coverages change. UNC went from strictly drop coverage primarily to they started hedging. They started trusting some of Armando Baycott and Brady Manick especially, uh, trusted them to do more switches, started trusting Caleb Love and RJ Davis to communicate better. Um, and then thirdly, you did see individual improvements and Hubert Davis changed some of the individual assignments that there were. So Leaky Black obviously is where we sort of start on an individual basis with UNC's defense. Um, he's their best perimeter defender. He's long, he's quick. He can stay stride for stride with guys, but also challenge bigger guys because of his height and his length. Um, 
Hubert Davis basically just started using him as a chess piece. And he was like, I don't really care who you are. I don't care who your best player is. I'm putting Leaky on him and I'm going to make his life miserable. Um, and that was pretty effective for the most part. You also see Armando Baycott, even by the end of the season when he was basically on one leg, um, you know, improved a lot in terms of rim protection, in terms of his functional strength, in terms of attention to detail with his positioning, all of those things improved. And then one other guy who I thought got a lot better and one who I'm very interested in to see this season with a healthy summer is Puff Johnson. You know, he came back in the middle of last year. He struggled with COVID as a freshman, struggled with injuries as a freshman, struggled with injuries last year, finally comes back into the rotation, isn't really worth a whole lot defensively. By the end of the year, you saw him get back into game shape. The conditioning allowed him to play with a lot better positioning and functional strength. And as a result, his man on man defense, especially against UCLA and Kansas, uh, were really terrific. So I think a lot of those changes are replicable. I think they will carry over this year. The thing that I am not sure will carry over and the thing that we have to see again is, is the team defense as a cohesive unit as strong when you're playing nine guys instead of five? It's a lot easier when five guys are getting all of the main reps when it's nine guys and you have different lineup combinations is that same, um, you know, is everybody in sync to the same extent that remains to be seen. That's one of the challenges facing Hubert Davis this season. When, when I went back to look and see, you know, kind of the, the, the game I kept using was, I think it was February 19th. They lost to Virginia tech. I think it was somewhere in mid February, they lost to Virginia tech and then didn't really lose again until they lost in the national championship. And I wanted to see where they were, you know, from an advanced stats perspective on that day and where they ended up at the end of the season. And I guess subconsciously in my head, it was, oh my gosh, it was, I mean, the guard play was unbelievable. They, those guys got so much more efficient, like down the stretch. I, I bet their offensive efficiency numbers are going to be super different and they weren't, it was right. It went from, I think at, I think at Kim Palm, they went from 22nd to 18th in offensive efficiency. It, you know, they were a, a top 25 offense and, you know, according to, to Kim Pomeroy's statistics pretty much all year, it was that defensive jump. I mean, they're 117th at Kim Pom in defensive efficiency in the middle of February and ended up 35th. And, and that's a ridiculous jump. And yes, a jump that, that I can see right winning basketball games in the tournament just gives you massive jumps across the board uh, on that site. But, but still I was surprised to just, just to see how big, because unless you're playing just completely different defense, you're not making that big of a jump. And um, I was surprised. I, I was surprised to see that. Um, is there anything from the guys that you're bringing for that UNC is bringing back and then we can kind of move, move off North Carolina. Is there is there a skill that you need to see a player kind of cultivate, get better at that you think is most important to kind of take that next step, right? In theory, right? If you're, if you're staying the same, completely the same, and this is especially true in, in soccer, right? If you're, if you're staying the same, oftentimes you're getting worse, right? Is there a guy that you're looking for him to, really improve in something to, to raise the ceiling of this team even more. Yeah, absolutely. And I, by the way, I'm a huge prescriber to that theory. You are either actively getting better or you're getting worse at all times, you know, staying the same is not really a thing. Um, for me, I, I think the guy who sort of sinks or swims UNC this season, and he did a lot of swimming last year, but also showed in the national title that he can sink a team is Caleb Love. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think really his shot selection remains 
the greatest unknown on trying to put, you know, in trying to lay out what North Carolina's potential ceiling or floor could be, because he single-handedly changes that calculation so so dramatically. You know, you see him against UCLA, you see him uh, against Duke, you see him just when he's outstanding, he is one of the more exciting players in college basketball. Um, and then you see in the national title, he, you know, can't hit water from a boat. And as a result, the Tar Heels offense gets totally out of sync. And I think also, you know, you look at the way that he played during the tournament last year, by the time that team got to the title game, there's almost some element of like, listen, this guy's got to take 30 attempts. And we just sort of live or die by what happens. Everything that I've heard from North Carolina's coaching staff, from players, from people around the program in general this summer, is they are trying to sand down some of the edges with Caleb Love. And obviously, I talked to him uh, after he got back from Damian Lillard's camp where he won MVP. And he said, look, like shot efficiency for me, decision making in terms of getting my own, in terms of, okay, not settling for shots that I can get three seconds into the shot clock. That is the biggest thing for him. Um, not just on an individual basis, obviously he's got NBA hopes and dreams. And I think a lot of people thought that he'd probably already be at that point by now. Um, but within a team concept, if Caleb love is going to continue taking those inefficient shot, if he's going to, you know, continue shooting on those nights when he's O of 10 O of 11 from three, like that cannot be the case anymore because they have the talent now where they don't need that to be the case. So for him, it's, it's a two-step process. One, it's learning how to be more efficient shot selection, uh, learning how to read the flow of a game, learning how to identify, okay, you know, if RJ Davis has 30 points at the half and I have two, you know, I'm okay to let him continue being that guy. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things you saw that facilitated that at the end of last season was Caleb Love moving to more of an off-ball role, having to make fewer on-ball decisions. RJ Davis is doing much more of that. I think that helped him a lot. So, um, and then once he gets that part of it down, it's about being able to do everything else, right? It's about making sure that you are chasing uh, over the top of ball screens on defense. It is about making sure that when you're driving in and there's nine people in the lane, uh, just kick it out, Caleb. You don't have to put up the <laughs> shot every time. Um, you know, it's about learning to be a comprehensive basketball player. That is the thing that we've seen him sort of take these steady growth uh, throughout the past two seasons. It's got to continue happening at this level for UNC to get to the point they want to as a team and for him to get to the NBA, which is obviously a huge individual goal. Moving on to the Duke side of things, the first thing I want to ask is, in your mind, I'm sure you've been following this recruiting class. Obviously, it's part of sort of John Shire's thing, even before he became head coach, was putting a class like this together. We can look at the recruiting rankings all we want, but as somebody who's following this program closely, how does this freshman class compare to some of the other ones in recent memory, whether it's some of the lower profile ones or obviously the highest profile one with that Zion Williamson class that from a rankings perspective is probably the closest comparison. Yeah, it's so that's the thing is when you're talking about comparisons, that is the class, the Zion cam RJ class. That's the one that gets brought up as a point of comparison. Um, I can tell you now there is not a Zion Williamson in Duke's freshman class. There is probably not an RJ Barrett in this class. Um, you know, I think Derek Whitehead is going to be a really good player, but I, I don't know that he even has the full offensive arsenal right now that RJ Barrett probably had coming into school. And I think Zion probably over, overshadowed just how good RJ was. If RJ had been on totally. that Duke team by himself, I mean, the, the dude is – I mean, he's the AC player of the year in a landslide problem. So um, this is not that recruiting class. And I'm sort of nervous for John Shire's sake in that respect. They're going to be really good. 
Um, but they are stronger because of their depth than because of their individual talent, if that makes sense. So, you know, you, you're looking at a guy in Derek Lively, for example, the number one player in the class coming in um, seven foot one. You know, a lot of people were, were telling me they saw some Willie Colley Stein in him just from the scouting level coming into Duke. Um, someone who sort of fits that same profile as a Mark Williams last year, but maybe does a little bit more for you offensively. I do think he's going to step out and take some three pointers this season. Um but in terms of the offensive game, he's pretty raw. You know, he's a he's an alley-oop threat. He's a lob threat. He's a transition threat. And he can occasionally take some three-pointers and if you leave him open at the elbows. But he's not a guy who's getting the ball in the low post and is backing you down and hitting you with counters and all that. Like, that's not his game. That's not Kyle Filipowski's game either. You know, Kyle Filipowski, I, I'm really fascinated to see how he competes from an athletic standpoint. You know, the guy has a lot of skill. I think he's a pretty good spot-up shooter. He'll probably be one of the fresh, one of the better freshman big man shooters in the country. Um, and he obviously can handle the ball a little bit. He's a, I think he's probably an underrated passer, but again, he's not a terrific athlete. How are, is he going to fit defensively for Duke? Um, you know, Derek Whitehead obviously comes in as, you know, probably the most heralded guy from an NBA perspective, just in terms of, you know, he's a six, six wing switchable versatile can get downhill, attack the rim. That's what the NBA loves right now. Um, what does he look like after a broken foot? Is he going to be as explosive? Is he going to be as aggressive? Who knows? We'll see. Um, is he even back by the start of the season? Or does it take him a couple of weeks, a la AJ Griffin, to get up to full strength? Like, there are some serious questions here. Um, no doubt that these guys are talented, but I definitely think that this is a Duke team, especially it's going to be noticeable because it's John Shire instead of Coach K. I think that there is the intent going into the season to play more guys. You know, last year, by the end of the season, Duke's playing five and a half, six and a half. Um, I, I would not at all be surprised if there are like nine guys who see serious rotation minutes for Duke this year. Um, and that is as much because there's not as much separation between those guys, you know, between, you know, player three and player six on the roster in the rotation. But I also think it's because there are that many guys who do have the ability to contribute. Um, the only guy in this recruiting class who I don't think is probably going to play as a freshman is Christian Reeves. Um, but even somebody like a Jaden shoot, I can absolutely see Duke running him off screens and hitting threes. And if he's doing that, Shire's going to find minutes for him. So it's a funky class. It is deeper than it is just individually stronger. Um, so I'm interested to see how Duke fans sort of understand that and appreciate it over the course of the year. Okay. So a couple of things that we want, that I want to, that I want to circle back to, um, right. One, two, and four, that's the really sexy thing to talk about, right? They have one, two, and four in the class. Um, two more guys in, in that top 25, top 30 range. Um, a guy that reclassified originally a 2023 guy in Tyrese Proctor, maybe the two guys that right in, in a segment that they have three minutes to talk about it on a talk show we're not getting to Mark Mitchell and Tyrus Proctor necessarily. What have you seen from, you know, the kind of the, the research you've done on them, the film study you've done on them um, and what they might bring to, uh, to this roster. We'll start there and then we'll, we'll kind of go elsewhere. Yeah, for sure. So we actually got to go to uh, from going to practice, you know, in July, I think um, that was obviously before Tyrese was there, but Mark Mitchell looked awesome. You know, Mark Mitchell looked great. He is long. He yeah. is so long. You know, I know, I think he's listed at six, eight or six, nine, whatever they put him as. Um, but he's got a seven foot wingspan and he is a guy who, you know, we were just talking about it a little bit with Leaky Black, obviously has the length to defend bigs, to defend, you know, anybody three to five. I, I think he's got the quickness where they're going to use him basically as just a totally switchable defender. I don't think there's anybody there uncomfortable with him going one-on-one -on -one against. Um, ton of energy, super energetic. Again, he's like an easy offense guy. You know, he's a, he's a cutter. He's an offensive rebounder. He's 
an oop threat. He's a lob threat. He's a transition guy. I, if he's a if if the three point shot falls, I think he's got as much upside as anybody that Duke has on the roster. If the three point shot falls, mm-hmm. that is a big if. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> uh, but if it falls, I think that's there. As for Proctor, um, he's going to play a lot. You know, I think he's probably going to be the biggest beneficiary of Derek Whitehead's injury right now. Um, I think he's going to start for them. You know, I think he's going to be a two, but I think he can do some ball handling. I think he's going to be one of their three point shooters right off the bat. He's pretty explosive. He looks bigger than uh, he looked over the last maybe even year. You know, he looks stronger. His body looks more flushed out. He looks more physically adept and he's been playing against grown men in Australia. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that those two guys are probably being slept on and I wouldn't be surprised if, Outside of Derek Whitehead, who I still do think is probably the most attractive from an NBA standpoint, if you told me that in March or April, both of those guys are one and done and they're being projected as top 20, 25 picks, I would not be surprised in the slightest. The other interesting aspect of this team and the reason why you're, you're allowed to have this deep recruiting class is you have a single returning player with big time real experience playing for Duke. How big of a concern is that for you? And also that player is probably going to have the ball in their hands a lot in terms of decision-making. You know, this is not a guard-heavy class. This is a lot of wings and seven-footers. Where does sort of that part of it, the other side of this equation, come into play for you? Yeah, so uh, I, and I, I will wear out this statistic before the start of the season and probably even into it. Duke has 11 new players. Like, even by Duke standards, that is ridiculous. <laughs> right. That's absurd. I mean, that's right. crazy. Like you do not, you just don't do that. And you especially don't see it amongst teams that are projected to be preseason top 10 teams and potentially if everything falls the right way, like compete for ACC and national championships. You don't see that much turnover leading to that kind of success. And so Jeremy Roach has got a hell of a burden on him. <laughs> Um, that said, I think that this roster sets up about as well around him as you could possibly hope for if you're John Shocker. Um, he is going to have the ball in his hands a ton. He's going to play 30, 35 minutes a night. I don't think he's Duke's leading scorer, but he is its most important player because he's going to be the guy who in transition is hitting those outlet passes. He's the guy who is going to be, uh, you know, running all of these different, you know, ball screen oriented actions that John Shire wants to run. He's going to be running horns with Filipowski and with Lively. He's going to be the decision maker. He's going to be the driver who's kicking, who's going in and kicking out to Proctor and Grandison in the corners. We haven't even talked about Grandison yet. He's going to be the guy who's getting everybody else involved. And I think, you know, best case scenario, probably by January, February, Whitehead is taking on some of those creative aspects too, but especially at the start of the year, man, is all of that responsibility falling on Jeremy Roach. And as he showed during the NCAA tournament, he can do that. He can be that guy. Um, I think he's also going to set the tone for them defensively. You know, last year, for as good as Wendell Moore was, for as good as Trevor Keels was at times defensively, I thought Roach applied the most on-ball pressure, the three of them. Uh, So he's going to set the tone defensively too. But, yeah, 11 new guys. You're the only one back. You're the only, like, real upper class. It's like Duke has – Due to her 18 years old, due to her 24 years old, and Jeremy <laughs> Rush. And that's right. basically it. Um, so it's just a really, it's like a funky locker room dynamic, too. I'm fascinated by Duke. I, you know, I know a lot of people think they're top 10, and I completely buy that. And I think they probably will be, too. But just seeing how everybody shakes out and what the roles are, like, you know, I think I know what's going to happen. I think John Shire thinks he knows, uh, but we have no clue what this team is going to look like, even by January standards. 
And it also hasn't, you know, last thing, but and then we'll move to the rest of the ACC, but it hasn't been that long since, I mean, right. And it was a COVID year and there were a lot of weird things that happened with that COVID team and Jalen Johnson. And, but it hasn't been that long since Duke had a really nice looking recruiting class that kind of fell apart at the seams. And then it was a bunch of freshmen that were not ready to be the most important players on a college basketball team. And that's right. I think we're talking about a different level of recruiting class here. It's not quite in that same ballpark. Um, like Jalen Johnson, I think was outside the top 10 in terms of, in terms of where he was ranked in that class. Um, but still there's that, there's that, you know, tickle in the back of your throat constantly about, okay, like all of this depends on these guys immediately translating to the college game. That's just, that's just what we're talking about here when, when it's that level of new. Um, okay. You're, you're making a preseason tier list. Um, does anybody come close to the, the top tier along with Duke and UNC? Um, maybe those two teams are in two completely different tiers in your head, but when, but ultimately those two teams we know are going to be good. Is there a third team that you're looking at as kind of being the, the third team in this conference? And is that team close in your opinion to, to the level of play that UNC and Duke are going to bring? Yeah, I if I I think that North Carolina is probably a step above everybody. Mm-hmm. I do just because of the they have the combination of experience and top end talent. You sure. have both. You have both. And they're in a situation where I think their freshmen could potentially help. I think that Seth Trimble, for example, is their top rated freshman. Like he's going to play. He's going to be impactful. But they're not depending on those guys to be everything. Um, and as we've seen, you know, last season and and probably for the last five years or so these experienced teams, the teams that have super seniors, the teams that have guys who have played together for three, four years are the teams that are winning. You know, they're the teams that have the experience and they're the, you know, so for that reason, I think, you know, North Carolina is probably a one a, if you want to, in terms of tiers. Um, And then I would put Duke and, and I would actually put Virginia too, in that one B tier. I think that Virginia, you know, Tony Bennett is too good a coach for their defense to continue to have the same problems that it did last year and to a lesser extent the year before. And I think the fact that you're bringing back as many players as they are, basically the entire starting five, you bring in uh, Vanderplas as a transfer from Ohio. Um, I think that they have the combination of experience. And, you know, again, Keyhead Clark is a guy who's won a national title. Jaden Garter is a guy who now has a full year of ACC experience. Um, Reese Beekman made some tremendous strides last year. So you have these guys who are, are, are now a little bit more familiar. I think we forget with Tony Bennett, the reason why his teams, you know, even as recently as the, as the national championship team for Virginia, the reason those teams were so good is because they came in as freshmen and they played, or maybe they redshirted and they didn't play a ton. And really they learned the system, especially on the defensive side of the ball. They learned the pack line. And then by the time they were juniors, by the time they were seniors, they've been doing it for two or three years. They'd also been doing it for two or three years together. So I think you have a little bit more of that with Virginia. Um, and I think their defense is going to get back to being at that elite level that it, that it hasn't been the last two years. Um, so those would probably be my top three themes you know, I'll, I, I've heard arguments after that for putting a Miami up there, putting a Notre Dame up there, Florida State, you know, I think, you know, even a Virginia Tech, you know, I think all those teams are then probably in that next tier thereafter. Um, but no, for me, I, I think it's North Carolina sort of 1A, and then I would put Duke and Virginia in that 1B right after them. I was going to ask about Virginia's defense and make the exact same point, but you laid out exactly what I was going to say. So you agree, <laughs> you agree with me about the value of, right, getting this group back for a second go around with this defense and just the fact that it's it's not something that translates year to year when you have roster turnover. It's a multi-year learning process to actually get there where Tony Bennett wants to be. So 
don't need to ask that question. <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't see how that like I, I think we all are in agreement that Tony Bennett is one of the better coaches of this era. You know, if you were a college basketball team and you could hire anybody in the country as your head coach, like he's a top five pick. If you're, you know, a starting a franchise, so to speak. Um, yeah. I just don't think that that, you know, especially with the attention to detail defensively, like, and I think one of the other things that people forget about Virginia last season was they did have a couple of those guys who were like in the hopper, like in the intubator that were warming up to potentially be contributors last season who left in the transfer portal. Mm-hmm. And Tony Bennett even came out before last season when the portal sort of started being active and was like, look, I, I wasn't expecting this. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't think these guys were going to bolt. Like, you know, even talking about UNC, I think Justin McCoy put, could have been a guy who was valuable for Virginia last year. And clearly he's not going to see the floor for North Carolina this year. Right. Um, that's a situation where like, that's a guy who could have helped them. And so I think uh, they're just going to get back to that. Now they have that experience, didn't have the turnover. I trust Bennett too much as a coach for it to continue. The rest of this conference and kind of the conference as a whole, how much better do you think it could be in terms of sort of the, the overall national hierarchy? Obviously it was a down year last year, North Carolina doing what they did late really helped sort of change the conversation because it's easy to forget how bad this looked in January say, but you talked about Miami. I mean, there's no disputing what's in the backcourt there. We've already talked about Virginia, Florida state dealt with plenty of injuries last year. How much better do you think this overall conference can be with the combination of that, those top teams and also just the depth behind them that wasn't really there last season? Oh yeah. No question. It's going to be a better year for the ACC. And you know, Whatever happens in the non-conference influences the narrative for the rest of the season. And the ACC had a horrible non-conference last year. (laughs) You know, they were just bad all around. Only Duke did anything. North Carolina got embarrassed by Purdue, got embarrassed by Tennessee, almost lost to Brown. Like, it was bad. It was really bad. And, you know, we saw by the end of the year, like, hey, maybe these teams aren't that bad. Three teams, the Elite Eight, Miami. I, You know, Isaiah Wong's one of my favorite players in the country. I'm so glad he's back. They finally have, like, a sort of real big man um, that they got from Arkansas State. You know, I, I, I think that Miami's going to be a really good team this year. Like, just looking at the ACC on paper this year, I think you can make the argument. Obviously, Duke and North Carolina will be there. Uh, Virginia, I think, will be there. You know, Notre Dame, Miami, uh, Florida State, like – you look up at the top of that roster, even down to team seven and eight, and they're going to have opportunities to make the NCAA tournament. You know, I think this is a seven or eight team year again for the ACC. You know, one bid ACC is not back. So, uh, <laughs> you know, one bid ACC is a thing of the past. And that's a good thing. And I think last year was obviously an aberration. You had a lot of turnover throughout the league in terms of, you know, coaches leaving, coaches retiring, the portal, trying to understand what that means. I, I just think everybody has a much better grasp all about this season. And, um, you know, top to bottom, the ACC is stacked this year. So, yeah, if I had to pick right now, I'd say I, I bet seven teams get in. Um, don't hold me to that if that, you know, somebody's blowing, bottoming out. Like, And also, you know, credit where it's due, I think some of those bottom barrel teams are also going to step up. You know, I, I don't know that NC State, you know, could be much worse on the interior than it was last year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think – in terms of a team like Boston College, for example, Earl Grant, I think he got that team playing with some competitive fire. They almost upset Miami in the ACC tournament. Like that's a team that I think is going to be a little bit better. So, um, you know, Steve Forbes in the transfer portal, not going to go against that. You know, there's some interesting recruits. What can Dior Johnson do at Pitt? Like, mm-hmm. I just think on the whole, the talent level in the ACC has risen. And as a result, you're going to see more teams, if not making the tournament, at least being competitive to potentially do so late into the season. I feel really bad for Steve Forbes because I think 
like that team last year was was super interesting to watch and had some talent that like right if you asked Steve Forbes at the beginning of the year hey are you losing Alondis Williams and Jake Laravia no no we're not losing Jake Laravia we're not losing Alondis Williams um and we're certainly not losing Jake Laravia to the number 19 overall pick in the NBA draft um and this is just kind of a larger conversation about a couple of these teams that lost some major pieces from last year, you know, NC state, wake forest, uh, Georgia tech. Um, is there, is there any specifically for wake forest? I feel so bad for Steve Forbes. We went from, you know, this just hard to look at, but you can't look away era of wake forest basketball. And then Steve Forbes comes in and, we have a top 35 Kempom team that's top 45 in both offense and defensive efficiency. And then his two guys leave. And there are some things to look at here, but I just, there's no way this is where Steve thought he was going to be heading into this season with the talent that he had last year. Yeah, no way, no way. Um, and that's, it is unfortunate because I don't, I don't know if he is okay. First things first, Steve Forge is a great coach. He is a terrific coach, and I think one of the things that he probably still doesn't get enough credit for is his ability to churn a roster and create cohesion quickly, um, which especially in this era is as essential as anything else, especially with how frequently he has to go to the portal, just for given you know the state of Wake Forest high school recruiting, where it sits in the ACC and national and even state hierarchy. You know, like you're talking about it being fourth in the state realistically still. So um, I think they have pieces. I think that expecting them to reproduce at the same level without the ACC player of the year and a first round pick and is completely unreasonable. I don't think they're going to be nearly as good as they were last year. Um, but I do think that he is proving that if you come to Wake Forest, and I think he's going to prove this again, I think they're going to be better than people expect them to be. Like I would expect that they're going to be picked probably to finish still again, you know, last year, I think they were 13th in the preseason. Um, I think they're probably going to be in that 10 to 15 range again this year. And they're going to end up finishing sixth or seventh. And people are going to be like, wow, Steve Forbes did a great job. Um, you know, it's, it's just going to happen. He has some, like he, he has some pieces and he still has some returners, you know, Davian Williamson is back. Uh, Damari Monsanto, who, you know, didn't come into the middle of the year last year. Uh, he's back. They bring in a couple of interesting portal kids as always. I don't know that they're going to get a ton of production from their freshmen, but you know, maybe, maybe they do. Um, he, he is not in the place that he wanted to be, but there are also worse places he could be in. And I think that we're going to see over the next couple of years as he continues to prove that he can develop people into NBA prospects and sort of restores what Wake Forest had in terms of that pipeline. It'll do a lot in terms of the high school recruiting for him um, and the portal, just being able to get more coveted kids. And, you know, it's a pretty good argument to be able to walk into any transfer potential transfer players living room and say, look, I had a guy who was a junior college and was playing, you know, in, in at Indiana state and I turned them into two NBA players and I can do the same thing with you. That's a pretty convincing argument. Um, you know, other than, other than what North Carolina did with Brady Manick last year, I don't know that there's a better transfer portal argument that a coach can make in the ACC than what Steve Forbes came. On the other end of the coaching spectrum, I sort of look at this ACC season and I, for varying reasons, not that all of these guys are immediately on the hot seat, but you go from Kevin Keats to Brad Brunel, Jeff Capel, Josh Pastner, and I even threw Mike Bray in there. Obviously, Notre Dame had a, a fairly good season, but when you think Mike Bray, Notre Dame, it hasn't been quite what Notre Dame used to be the past five or so seasons. How much pressure do you think these coaches are are under, and are we 
in danger of seeing a very different ACC coaching list in the next year or two, depending on how this goes. Cause you know, Notre Dame definitely has some intrigue this year. Most of those other teams are trying to find a way to get out of the bottom or are, and are also some of them dealing with some major losses of their own. Like we kind of touched on. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to start off by adding another name to your list. Um, Jim Beheim, I think is, is probably mm-hmm. one that we need to start watching at this point. Um, you know, this Syracuse team is no longer relevant. They are no longer really competitive. Um, basically every team in the ACC, if their three point numbers are bad, all they need to do is take a trip up to Syracuse and that's mm-hmm. sort of a quick fix potion. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we are probably looking at a very different league in terms of the head coaches next year, you know, like, it's, it's now six years for Kevin Keats in Raleigh and the only NCAA tournament that he made, I know he got sort of screwed by the COVID situation, but the only tournament he made was with his predecessor's players. Hasn't been able to do it mm-hmm. himself. Hasn't been able to coach consistency whatsoever. Um, Josh Pastner, man, is such a character in the ACC. But like that, that's again, that's a program where even when you had the players and when you had the Moses Wrights and you had the Alvarados and you had the DeVos and whatnot, like you never probably realize their full potential from a team perspective. Um, you know, Jeff Capel, the buyout was prohibitive last year. I think we all know that he is willing to take a gamble on a guy like Dior Johnson that who, who has been to, I mean, basically a different high school every other week. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that he's willing to gamble on a guy like that tells you about what he thinks about his job security right now. Like that's mm-hmm. not a player you take if you're feeling confident in where you're at right now. So yeah, certainly Brad Brownell, like, the, the legacy of winning at Clemson, especially given what the football program does there is not, the pressure is not there. Right. Um, but, but, but Brad Benell's a guy who, again, even when he had talent is probably not playing up to it. Now they're dealing with, you know, is PJ Hall going to be available and to what extent this season? Like, mm. I, I think you're probably talking about at least if, if, if not more, at least two or three coaches who are probably out at the end of the season. Um, especially just because we already had these conversations last year and, and there isn't an immediate pathway to improvement in a league in which, teams two through seven got better. That means that life got harder for teams eight through 15 too. So, um, you know, Bray's the interesting one because I think that sort of like Bayheim, he's, he's going to be able to call it when he wants to. Um, And I think that he still has the passion. And I think that, you know, getting some of the guys they've gotten on the recruiting cycle the past few years has been reinvigorating, but at the same time, you know, there's no way that in a year from now we're sitting here doing our semi-annual preview and, <laughs> and we're, and we're still talking about all these guys being in charge of the same programs. Um, the results haven't been there over a sustained period of time. And at the end of the day, change has to happen. The other thing I'm interested to see from a more, you know, 30,000 foot view is as football media distributions continue to rise, if the leashes for basketball as well get to be shorter. Because if you have an extra $35 million in the bank, suddenly it's less prohibitive to get rid of a guy who costs you $6 million than it does if you only have $20 million in the bank. So um, I'm interested to see how that influences the general hiring structure and firing structure, um, especially in some of those big conferences. Who do you think are the best players in this conference this year, right? There are the, they're the obvious ones, right? I mean, if, if there aren't two guys, at least from UNC, on the first team on first team all ACC something probably went went wrong um if Duke has a top 10 top 15 season one of those freshmen is probably going to be in that conversation um who else is on that list for you um because when you know when you look back at a at a first team all conference list it kind of gives you a, a decent idea of what the conference looked like that year um and which guys had the biggest impact 
uh, on the conference. Uh, apart from UNC and, and those Duke guys, who are you looking at? Maybe guys that are, are obvious returners and maybe some guys that uh, might take a bigger jump forward than people are expecting. Yeah, um, I already gave him a little bit of love, but Isaiah Wong, you know, mm-hmm. back back again, you know, the Iron Warrior, um, the dude, the dude. I listen. Hey, if I had the opportunity to just keep coming back, it's like if you live in Miami, Florida, and they're like, <laughs> "Hey, come on back, and we're going to pay you a bunch of nil money, and you can just chill for another year." Like, yes, I would like to I'm do in. that. I'm in. Yes, please. Um, it's like the 38 year old who's a backup quarterback for six years because right. yes, I'll keep I'll keep cash at three million dollars. Sure. Um, so I think Isaiah Wong, again, I think he's going to be tremendous. And I think his backcourt mate, Nigel Pack, you know, this is a guy who was all first team, you know, Big 12 last year. I think he's going to be a really, really good addition. Um, he's keeping it a little bit more local, Terquavion Smith at NC State. Obviously, he, I think, surprised a lot of people by coming back. Um, he's going to have a tremendous burden on him to sort of maintain the scoring efficiency that he did last year. But I think he'll be able to do it. Um, you know, I, the talent is there for Dior Johnson to be a really good player. And the keys are there. You know, I think Jeff Capel's basically saying, hey, man, like, let's let's see what you can do. I think that I'm, I'm interested to see what he can do down at Florida State. You know, I think Caleb Mills, Matthew Cleveland are two guys who I'm intrigued by. Um, I could definitely see one or both of them potentially making it to the all-conference team. Um, you know, Wake Forest, I don't think that any of – I mean, we didn't even see Alondis coming. We didn't see Jake Laravia coming last year. Maybe someone crops up, but I don't see it. Um, so those are some of the other main guys that I look at. Obviously, in Virginia, you know, mm-hmm. Kihei Clark is sort of Mr. Reliable. I think Jaden Gardner. Reese Beekman is one who intrigues me. You know, if the offense comes around a little more consistently, like the defense is there with him, could t- certainly make that jump. I think he'll be a you know contender for defensive player of the year regardless. Obviously, the North Carolina guys that we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um and those are sort of the ones who stand out to me. PJ Hall would have been one if he wasn't injured, but unfortunately, you know, things happen. Um, and then, you know, we have a school we haven't even talked about is Louisville, you know, yeah. you know, because I don't know what to expect there. Like is, you know, Kenny Payne was, you know, from, I'm good friends with our Kentucky writer, Kyle Tucker um, at the athletic. And, you know, the credit that he has told me that Kenny Payne deserves the credit that you read about former players saying Kenny Payne deserves, I think he's going to be a good coach. I just don't know that there's a like guaranteed guy there. Who's going to really materialize. But um, if I had to make like my first team, all ACC right now for the preseason, I'd probably go with Jeremy Roach and Caleb love and Isaiah Wong and Terquavion Smith and Armando Baycott. And we're going to run a four out. Nobody <laughs> above six. I foot love three. It. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's not the opposite where I feel like most of the competitions are going to end up where, you know, your preseason all America team could just be five centers. So at least there's right. something different with the guards. Yeah, exactly. So I think again, you know, we know that guards run it in the ACC and I think it's going to be the case again this year, but obviously Baycott is the best. In the <laughs> Terquavion Smith is my favorite is my, <laughs> is my front runner for he averaged what this year. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking 16 points per game last year. And that's with Darion Sebron also taking like 16 shots a game or, or upwards of 20. Like, like that guy is going to have the, the volume at least to average in the mid twenties. We'll see if it actually happens, but he's on my list of, you know, here are the guys that might lead the country in scoring that unless you're a diehard college basketball fan, you have no idea exists. Right. Um, yeah, but he could be the type of guy like, oh my gosh, like NC State leading North Carolina at the under eight. Terquavion <laughs> Smith has twenty nine already. I, I'm I'm locked in for that to happen. 
Sirquavion Smith is going to be pulling up from his side of midcourt, uh, <laughs> yes. and and he's just gonna and he's gonna swish it and look over at Kevin Gates and just shrug, <laughs> like, <laughs> and and it'll be out of necessity because nobody else, there's nobody else to guard on NC State, so he's gonna have to pull up from there to have an open look. Correct. No, he's gonna get he's gonna get trapped before the eight second call, and he's right, just gonna right. have to pull up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but uh yeah it'll be i i do think it's going to be more top heavy again but uh some of these you know down the bottom barrel guy not bottom barrel teams but um some of those guys and then there's some other good freshmen i mean like you know uh mr starling up at notre dame i think is going to be an interesting player too so it'll be a better acc this year and and on the whole from you know good players on bad teams to good teams overall i'm just really excited for it we also didn't want to let you get out of here without making a prediction and i'll add a little bit to it who wins the conference and also kind of what do you feel like we are talking about when it comes to the ACC heading into the NCAA tournament? What is that narrative going to look like if you have to make a prediction? Yeah. So I'm, I'm uh, going to go with North Carolina. Uh, you know, I, it's safe. It's boring. Figured but I just, much, yeah. I just, you know, and, and I think you could make the argument for Virginia, especially because North Carolina, if we get into tiebreaker situations has historically really, really struggled playing in Charlottesville and just with Virginia in general. Um, but I also think we saw Hubert Davis sort of crack that code a little bit from the UNC perspective last year by basically putting leaky Black's seven foot wingspan on Kihei Clark and like eating him up. Um, so I could see that happening again. I think the conversation is going to be, and this is especially going to sound dramatic coming from last year. Maybe this is a little bit of a hot take. I think we're going to be talking about if the ACC gets as many teams into the tournament as any conference. Mm. Maybe that is bold. Um, But I do think when you look at who's gone out of the SEC, who's gone out of the Big Ten, I think especially who's gone out of the Big 12, like the reigning national champs basically have Jalen Wilson back and we'll see who else. Um, So I I do think the ACC is going to have an opportunity to sort of completely flip that narrative and have be sending as many teams as any league to the big dance. And I think that's on the whole going to be the narrative. We know, like we said, some of these top heavy teams are, but by the strength of the conference as a whole, those teams that are ranked four through eight are still going to have an opportunity for marquee wins, especially late in the year. Um, you know, like Virginia, I think plays North Carolina and Duke in the last three weeks of the season. I'm, I'm not hundred percent positive, but uh, that is my bold take. My, my boldest take is I think seven or eight teams get in. Um, maybe I'm just showing my ACC bias there, but that's okay. <laughs> Let's go ACC. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, Brendan, thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat with us. Uh, on our sim- semi-annual <laughs> podcast at this point. We very much appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks again, Brendan, for coming on the pod. Always an absolute pr- pleasure to talk to Brendan, talk hoops. And um, if anything wild happens with either of those teams this season, he will be a, a, a quick reach out to have him to come back on and chat about what's going on in the conference. But uh, that's it for the pod today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please subscribe to the Jays for Days podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Jays for Days Pod. And YouTube. And, and YouTube. And subscribe to the YouTube channel, um, Jays for Days Pod, uh, Jays for Days Podcast on YouTube. Search us up there. You can find the video versions of almost all of the podcasts. That's the idea. That's the, that's the intention. Uh, all of the podcasts you can find there on YouTube in video form as well we will be back next week with the continuation of our conference preview series thank you 
for listening to this edition of the Jays for Days podcast. I'm Josh. He's Josh. And we will see you later.